Well, good morning. I want to join Jason and everyone else in welcoming our visitors. We're so glad you're here this morning where we can take time together to look at our great God. It is good to be here and to worship with you. I just want to say how much I appreciate Sawyer. Sawyer texts you very early in the week to see what you're preaching about because he puts a lot of thought into what he leads and how he leads, and it shows. And he's done a very good job bringing us to the topic that we're going to be spending on together today. Because as was mentioned, we're going to be uh, spending more time thinking about the Lord's Supper. I'll have a longer lesson leading up to the partaking of the emblems than we normally do, and I'll have a short exhortation afterwards that will help us to uh, relate to our memorial feast and an invitation after that. So if the Lord's Supper feels longer than you're accustomed to today, that's intentional. And we're going to be spending time today to look at the cross, that wondrous cross that gives us hope. The Lord's Supper runs into a danger that we can all face. We take it every week as is commanded on the first day of the week. So how could that be a danger? Well, we run the risk of it becoming rote or merely tradition, something that we just do because we're accustomed to doing it, not because we see the meaning of it. We face a temptation here today. So I hope that this morning we can see the power of the memorial of Jesus Jesus Christ through the cross. The Lord's Supper is an important and powerful meal that we take together. It's a meal full of history and a meal full of relationship. So what makes the Lord's Supper powerful? Why is it important? I mean, there are several ways you can answer that. There are lots of aspects that make the Lord's Supper stand out. It's a meal that is steeped in Israelite history, especially through the Passover. It's a meal that Jesus took with his apostles, and it was full of betrayal and promise. It's a meal of memory for those who take it today, and of course, at the center of it all is the cross of Jesus Christ. There was a perfect sacrifice that happened on our behalf so that we can have our sins removed. And this meal was planned out by God so that we can have this reminder ingrained in us as one of our core values of what it means to be a Christian. Simply put, the Lord's Supper is here to make sure that Christians remember the cross. Because if we forget the cross, there is no possible way that we can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what's behind this meal? What makes this meal important? Why is it important for us to take it in the form of a meal? Well, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. And covenants were often formed through a meal throughout Scripture. Covenant's a word that we're going to use and see a lot throughout this lesson. So as we're understanding what we're partaking of, we'll see it. Let's see the Lord's Supper and the Bible story together so that we can take it with as much focus and honor as it deserves. It is a meal of covenant. The first place we need to start is by seeing that God has acted. We use the word covenant sometimes during worship, but what does it mean? It's not a common word we use in our day-to-day lives. In essence, it's an agreement between two people or groups. But it's more than just an agreement. It is a binding agreement. And there is also a sense of legality to it. And especially in our Bible conversations and spiritual application to it, it has a spiritual agreement to it, that it's important that we see it in all these ways. A covenant is a shared promise. And in our Bibles, it is a promise from God, which includes His expectations for us. So for us to understand covenant, 
it is important for us to see that it is all about relationship. God is inviting his people closer to him. It's important for us to understand the covenant, both what it means and its history as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, and during the first Lord's Supper, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Jesus himself points out to us that this is a relationship, a meal that we come together, a meal of promise, a meal of expectation. So let's see covenant in the Bible story so we can appreciate this new covenant Jesus offers us. There are several covenants given by God to the people uh, throughout the Bible story, and we certainly don't have time to talk about them all. We're going to highlight just a few to walk through so we can see what God is doing here as we work towards our new covenant. Beginning in Genesis 3, there is a covenant between God and mankind. Remember, the people have just sinned. Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden, and there is now the curses that have come upon them. But in giving the curses, God also gives a covenant promise here that one day the serpent would be crushed. And mankind plays a part in this because the offspring of Eve will be a part of the plan to crush Satan. God uses the fall of man to create a relationship between himself and mankind for his purposes. He is showing from the very beginning, even to sinful people, that God wants a relationship with his people. And every generation sinned along the way, harming that covenant, tarnishing that covenant. Sin enters the covenant. It continues in Genesis chapter 12, where God makes the promise to Abraham. God tells Abraham about how he will give him a land, a people, and a promise of the descendants, or maybe even more so, the descendant of Abraham that it's leading to. Abraham then is told that his expectation is that he will be a blessing to the nations surrounding them and how he lives as a follower of God. God continues to show that he has a plan to bring the people back to him as his people. This promise is repeated three times to Abraham and then to each of his descendants throughout the story of Genesis. God is serious about his promise to them here. God wants a relationship with his people. And as you know, each of the descendants of Israel, each of the descendants of Abraham sin in their own time, tarnishing that covenant, hurting their relationship with God. Sin had entered the covenant. And then the covenant takes on a greater form by the time we get to Exodus chapter 24, where God identifies a nation of promise for his people. I mean, God summarizes that covenant in other places like this. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's right. God wants this relationship with Israel. In Exodus 24, the covenant is brought into action and a meal is taken in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. And if you're in my Exodus class, you may remember that the people don't wait very long to break this covenant either. They built a golden calf to worship in the place of God. Through the mercy of God, He renews this covenant with them right after in the wilderness. God wants a relationship with His people. But Israel throughout their history as a nation, struggles to keep their end with God. Sin has entered the covenant. The covenant is progressed in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when David is told he is not going to be the one to build the temple, but it would be his son Solomon. 
God takes that opportunity to build the covenant through him. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, is what God tells David in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16. God wants to bring David to a covenant relationship with him. David will continue to be God's servant, a man after God's own heart, and God will use David to bring about his purposes. God wants a relationship with his people. But before too long, sin enters even the family of David, and each king that comes after him fails in their own way to end this covenant. Sin has entered the covenant. That takes us to our conclusion that we have to come to. Something has to change. We've got to be better. There's got to be a way where we can have this covenant that might last. Because these covenants keep failing because of people and their sin. The people had always fallen into sin, and so the covenants kept being broken. So the prophet Jeremiah tells of a new covenant coming one day. Read with me here in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. This promise of something greater, a relationship that God wants that will last, that will make it through our inefficiencies and inadequacies that we have as His people. God shows that He has a greater covenant in mind that is coming one day when His Son Jesus will bring it to perfection through His sacrifice on the cross. God is always preparing us to hear that He wants a relationship with us. That same covenant from before will still apply to us. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus perfects that in the new covenant. So Jesus can say as he prepares his disciples to take the first Lord's Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I show you this progression because it's important to see that this meal is not man-made. It's not something that men came up with a long time ago. But it's something as a part of a pattern that God has established since the beginning of creation, showing us that he wants a relationship with us as his people and that we can follow Him. Each covenant was given to help shape us so that we appreciate the new covenant of Jesus today. Now, there are two things to remember for us in this understanding covenant. First is that God acts first in covenants. In every generation where God's desire for a relationship with the people is recounted, it is always the same, that God is the one who acts, and we are the ones left to respond. God is the great God of salvation because He loves us and He wants us to be His people. If you notice, in the covenants we read and any other covenant God makes with His people, it is always the same. You will see, I will, I will, I will, I will from God. 
He is acting. He is acting first. He is making promises to His people. God is the giver of all grace. And that continues to be true because of Jesus. God acts first. Second, God is acting in mercy when He gives a covenant. God is never obligated to give and offer a covenant relationship. He simply does it because He loves us. It is in His nature to continually offer a relationship to us. And God offers covenant relationship to generation after generation. And guess what? None of them deserved to come near to God. All of them were unworthy to be in a relationship with God. And that's still true today of us. We're not deserving a covenant with God, and yet still He sends His Son to create that new covenant for us. But something had to change. The old covenant to the new covenant. And so there is sadness that we face when we look towards our covenant meal today. Now this is a meal of sin. It should say a meal because of sin, but I hope you'll forgive me for trying to make the PowerPoint look clean. But sin can destroy a covenant. I mentioned that in Exodus, the covenant was destroyed almost immediately. And that's the same problem in every covenant. Abraham and his descendants could not always be a blessing to the nations due to their sin. David could not always be the man God asked him to. In fact, just four chapters after he receives this covenant promise, he's making his famous sin with Bathsheba. On the other hand, God never breaks a covenant. He is perfect in keeping His promises and perfect in His relationships. God is always the one to approach sinful people and offer them grace. And He consistently has His covenant rejected by people who don't appreciate what they are given. So why did there need to be a new covenant? The new covenant was necessary because the sin of the people was not perfectly answered for in the old covenant. That sin broke what was good. In every covenant that God offered to His people before Christ, as soon as the first sin was committed, the covenant was broken. That's why Moses, coming down from Mount Sinai, broke the stone tablets, because that covenant was no more. All the old covenants are broken. The people of God never carried a covenant through to completion. Something had to change. We cannot keep breaking covenants that God wanted us to live by. So God sent Jesus. And Jesus came to die on our behalf so that there might be a lasting covenant of grace for us. That's why we often say we are sad to partake of this meal. Sad because of the memory of the cross. Because we know our sin was the thing that made the cross necessary. We know that it's because of our faults Jesus died on the cross. We know that Jesus never deserved such a death. His perfection demanded a throne, not a cross. Yet Jesus in love came to give us that covenant relationship. And so that shows us our next section. Because of this new covenant, there is something different. For so long, sin had destroyed a covenant, and every time it had to be remade, repromised, regiven. They had to be repeated to someone else. But with the new covenant, something is different. It's a repairable covenant based on the grace of God. To be clear, the old covenant was given by the grace of God as well. 
But this new covenant is given and sustained by the grace of God in a greater way than we have ever seen before. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're gonna, Hebrews shows us this quite well. We'll be in Hebrews 9 and 10 for the remainder of our lesson. Starting in verse 11, Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal offered, eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice is better. Let's keep reading. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This new covenant is greater because it overcomes sin. This new covenant is different because it is a covenant that can be mended and extended to His people. For so long, sin has created a rift between God and man, and there was nothing that could be done to permanently remove that sin. Something had to change. So the irony of this is that this greater covenant, this new covenant that's better than anything before, the sign of it is the cross. The lowest, worst thing that people could come up with picture of shame, sin, pain, and death is the, the center of our hope as Christians in this new covenant. The greater thing is the cross. And even more so, God sent His Son to die on that cross so that there could be this covenant relationship with people, with us. For so long, sin has been recognized and we were powerless to remove it. And the blood of sacrifices had been shed for generations, but did not solve the problem. Go down to Hebrews 10 and verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jump down to verse 10. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So God brought about Jesus Christ, who is the perfect guarantee of the new covenant. His body and His blood were precious enough to remove sin and death from all mankind. His blood was shed to show us that God still wants us to be His people, and He is willing to pay the ultimate price to make that happen. 
And so this meal that we take today helps us remember what God has done to make us His people. This is the new covenant of His blood. It is not just what happened on the cross, but everything that God did leading up to the cross. It is all the patience God showed to people from creation until Jesus comes again. And all of that love points us to the pinnacle of the cross. So this meal that we take together each week is important. It shows us that we belong to the Lord. It reminds us that we have been bought with a price, that we have a God who loves us and forgives us of our sins. So as we partake of this memorial feast, we have a great reminder of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We get a reminder of how we have been forgiven of our sins. We get a reminder of our mended and perfect new covenant relationship with God. So let's take this thought of all that God has done to save us through the cross and partake of this memorial together. There's more to the story of Jesus, though. It does not end at the cross because it is also a story of victory. I hope you still have your Bibles open to Hebrews because we'll be continuing to read. We just ended with this uh, verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pick up in verse 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my heart on their, uh, their laws Let me start over. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness for these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus reigns in victory. What we see here is the aftermath of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it wasn't the end that the opponents of Jesus expected. They thought that they had achieved victory, that they had stopped Jesus from teaching and about salvation and coming again. They thought that they had put an end, but it isn't the end of the story. Many people have died for the sake of others, and some of those deaths are remembered, but none of those deaths are celebrated to the same extent as Jesus Christ, because Jesus' sacrifice was special. His death was special. Because his sacrifice was permanent. Take a look at verse 12. His offering for all time. One single sacrifice. Compare that to verse 11. Every priest stands daily, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices that could not do it. Jesus did something that worked. It was better. It overcame. And it took away our sins and victory. So therefore... Those old sacrifices, as much as the blessing as they could be to the people, only led to death. But Jesus' sacrifice gave life. And even more so, there is a permanence of of the sacrifice. There is the hope of life. Because notice in verse uh, 12 at the end, He sat down at the right hand of God. That is a picture of victory because He lives. And then it quotes Psalm 110. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus overcame sin and death, and he sits over them as a conqueror. He has perfected us in his death, and his life is giving us hope. By the way, do you see what's quoted here for us at the end of this section? Jeremiah 31 is here for us again, which we read earlier to show this hope of a new covenant that will come, that this relationship will be mended and God will have a new and better relationship with his people. And here it is used again. And the writer of Hebrews, by the way, also quoted it back in chapter 8 and verse 8. He really wants us to get this point. The prophet, about 600 years ago, writes about Jesus to point to the perfect coming of a Savior who will come, remove all our sins, and give us a lasting relationship with God. All of Scripture, all of human history has pointed us here to the victory we have in Jesus on the cross, and He has won over sin, and it has brought us near to Him as His people. His victory is not temporary. It is a permanent and perfect victory in every way. But you'll remember... God acts first in a covenant. This is His acting first, everything that He has done so far. But a covenant is agreement with two parties, two people. So what is our part in this? And that takes us to our final part. That is, this is a meal of action. It calls us to do something in response. So let's read verse 19 through 25. Hebrews still has this for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice how we have new confidence to draw near. For so long, with the most holy place, only one person could enter one day a year on the Day of Atonement. That's described back in chapter 9 by the writer of Hebrews. The people were separated Their relationship with God was limited, and now through the cross, we have confidence to draw near to a relationship with God. And so, there are three let us statements in the end here of our lesson of chapter 10. First is, let us draw near. This action in verse 22 is a personal devotion that we express to our God. God has invited us Let me get it on the screen for you. God has invited us near to him, so here is our chance to respond. Here's how we do it. With a true heart in the text, with absolute sincerity and devotion to be given to the Lord. There is no halfway in our covenant relationship with God. It requires a life-changing devotion that changes how we think and how we live. So with full, with a true heart, Second, in a full assurance of faith. As you know, Hebrews is about to jump into a whole chapter of teaching and emphasis on faith. That isn't just some disconnected part of the book of Hebrews. This is how we respond to the gospel. 
God has saved us and brought us back, brought us near so that we can be people of faith. And third, I emphasize these two last two things by saying impurity. Uh, we draw near impurity. The writer takes an Old Testament covenant idea to show us purity. Like the Levites were sprinkled clean to be ready for their service in the tabernacle and then takes it to being washed in baptism. What the writer is saying here is we need to be purified as we walk with the Lord. We're going to be sincere, faithful, and pure people as we walk with God. So let us draw near because of all that Jesus has done for us. That covenant relationship demands that of us. Second, let us hold fast. That's what we see there in verse 23. To the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You know, it's no secret that being a Christian is difficult. It's a hard calling to walk with God and to give Him your heart and to change everything about yourself to be His person. In fact, that's why Hebrews was written, to strengthen a group of Christians who were struggling in their faith and needed reasons, needed convincing to stick with it, to stand fast, hold fast. I mean, we just saw so many covenants broken by sin in the Old Testament. People of all generations, of all types, have struggled in their part of the covenant to keep their relationship with God. And we live in a world where values and ideas are constantly shifting. Not so for the Christian. We hold fast. We stay consistent, strong with the Lord as people who follow Him as we serve Jesus. And then verses 24 and 25, let us work together. I like how I notice that the first two are love God and the third one is love each other, the greatest two commands. I think that's fun how that's consistent with what Jesus teaches us. We motivate each other in verse 24 to keep going in the service of our King. We're always trying to our best to make sure that each of us keeps loving and serving others. We're all active together in our part of the covenant. And when we do that, we always make every effort to come together with those we share Christ with in worship. If you're a covenant relationship with God, you make every effort to be with the saints. The unity of the body of Christ is part of our covenant relationship. God has done so much to give us this covenant relationship. And we can be here to encourage one another as a result of that. So let me ask you, are you here every chance you get? Are you using your covenant relationship to encourage those who are around you? Your covenant relationship with God demands that you are with your church family, encouraging for love and service. God has done so much for us. We can respond by being here for each other. We continue to encourage each other every day until the day comes where Jesus returns. And this grows more and more in our lives. We need to respond to the covenant that God has extended to us through the cross. Thank you for listening this morning. We serve a great God, don't we? Amen. A God who has given us a place with Him when we were lost and we were sinful. The cross is our reminder of all that has been done for us so that we can be changed into God's people. What a great gospel. What great news that has been given to us. If you're this morning 
and you don't have a covenant relationship with God, you feel distant from who God is, that can be changed. God has invited everyone, including you, to be saved. If you want that relationship with God, you can come forward during the invitation song we're about to sing and be baptized. Or if you found yourself struggling, you haven't held fast, like the Hebrews writer asks us to, to the hope that you originally confessed, that covenant is still available to you through the grace of Jesus. God will welcome you back. You can come forward and ask for prayers. Please, won't you come as we stand and sing?